chapter 4, The Fiery Furnace. In the same year that Daniel and his companions entered the service of the king of Babylon, events occurred that severely tested the integrity of these faithful Hebrews and proved before an idolatrous nation the power and faithfulness of the God of Israel. While King Nebuchadnezzar was looking forward with anxious forebodings to the future, he had a remarkable dream by which he was greatly troubled and his sleep break from him. But although this vision of the night made a deep impression on his mind, he found it impossible to recall the particulars. He applied to his astrologers and magicians and with promises of great wealth and honor commanded them to tell him his dream and its interpretation. But they said, Tell thy servants a dream and we will show the interpretation. The king knew that if they could really tell the interpretation, they could tell the dream as well. The Lord had in his providence given Nebuchadnezzar this dream and had caused the particulars to be forgotten while the fearful impression was left upon his mind in order to expose the pretensions of the wise men of Babylon. The monarch was very angry and threatened that they should all be slain if in a given time the dream was not made known. Daniel and his companions were to perish with the false prophets. But taking his life in his hand, Daniel ventures to enter the presence of the king, begging that time may be granted that he may show the dream and the interpretation. To this request, the monarch accedes, and now Daniel gathers his three companions, and together they take the matter before God, seeking for wisdom from the source of light and knowledge. Although they were in the king's court surrounded with temptation, they did not forget their responsibility to God. They were strong in the consciousness that his providence had placed them where they were, that they were doing his work, meeting the demands of truth and duty. They had confidence toward God. They had turned to him for strength when in perplexity and danger, and he had been to them an ever-present help. The Secret Revealed the servants of God did not plead with him in vain. They had honored him, and in the hour of trial he honored them. The secret was revealed to Daniel, and he hastened to request an interview with the king. The Jewish captive stands before the monarch of the most powerful empire the sun has ever shone upon. The king is in great distress amid all his riches and glory, but the youthful exile is peaceful and happy in his God. Now, if ever, is the time for Daniel to exalt himself to make prominent his own goodness and superior wisdom. But his first effort is to disclaim all honor for himself and to exalt God as a source of wisdom. The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. The king listens with solemn attention as every particular of the dream is produced, and when the interpretation is faithfully given, he feels that he can rely upon it as a divine revelation. The solemn truths conveyed in this vision of the night made a deep impression on the sovereign's mind and in humility and awe he fell down and worshipped, saying, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords and a revealer of secrets.
the golden image, light direct from heaven had been permitted to shine upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and for a little time he was influenced by the fear of God. But a few years of prosperity filled his heart with pride, and he forgot his acknowledgment of the living God. He resumed his idol worship with increased zeal and bigotry. From the treasures obtained in war, he made a golden image to represent the one that he had seen in his dream, setting it up in the plain of Dura and commanding all the rulers and the people to worship it on pain of death. This statue was about 90 feet in height and nine in breadth, and in the eyes of that idolatrous people it presented a most imposing and majestic appearance. A proclamation was issued calling upon all the officers of the kingdom to assemble at the dedication of the image and at the sound of the musical instruments to bow down and worship it. Should any fail to do this, they were immediately to be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. Not fearing the king's wrath, the appointed day has come and the vast company is assembled when word is brought to the king that the three Hebrews whom he has set over the province of Babylon have refused to worship the image. These are Daniel's three companions who had been called by the king, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Full of rage, the monarch calls them before him and pointing to the angry furnace tells them the punishment that will be theirs if they refuse obedience to his will. In vain were the king's threats. He could not turn these noble men from their allegiance to the great ruler of nations. They had learned from the history of their fathers that disobedience to God is dishonor, disaster, and ruin, that the fear of the Lord is not only the beginning of wisdom but the foundation of all true prosperity. They look with calmness upon the fiery furnace and the idolatrous throng. They have trusted in God, and he will not fail them now. Their answer is respectful but decided. Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. The proud monarch is surrounded by his great men, the officers of the government, and the army that has conquered nations and all unite in applauding him as having the wisdom and power of the gods. In the midst of this imposing display stand the three youthful Hebrews steadily persisting in their refusal to obey the king's decree. They had been obedient to the laws of Babylon as far as these did not conflict with the claims of God, but they would not be swayed a hair's breadth from the duty they owed to their creator. The king's wrath knew no limits. In the very height of his power and glory to be thus defied by the representatives of a despised and captive race was an insult that his proud spirit could not endure. The fiery furnace had been heated seven times more than it was wont, and into it were cast the Hebrew exiles. So furious were the flames that the men who cast them in were burned to death. In the presence of the infinite, suddenly the countenance of the king paled with terror. His eyes were fixed upon the glowing flames, and turning to his lords, he said, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? The answer was, True, O king. And now the monarch exclaimed, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God.
when Christ manifests himself to the children of men, an unseen power speaks to their souls. They feel themselves to be in the presence of the infinite one. Before his majesty, kings and nobles tremble and acknowledge that the living God is above every earthly power. With feelings of remorse and shame, the king exclaimed, Ye servants of the Most High God, come forth. And they obeyed, showing themselves unhurt before that vast multitude, not even the smell of fire being upon their garments. This miracle produced a striking change in the minds of the people. The great golden image set up with such display was forgotten. The king published a decree that anyone speaking against the God of these men should be put to death because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Steadfast integrity and the sanctified life. These three Hebrews possess genuine sanctification. True Christian principle will not stop to weigh consequences. It does not ask, what will people think of me if I do this? Or how will it affect my worldly prospects if I do that? With the most intense longing, the children of God desire to know what he would have them do, that their works may glorify him. The Lord has made ample provision that the hearts and the lives of all his followers may be controlled by divine grace, that they may be as burning and shining lights in the world. These faithful Hebrews possessed great natural ability. They had enjoyed the highest intellectual culture and now occupied a position of honor. But all this did not lead them to forget God. Their powers were yielded to the sanctifying influence of divine grace. By their steadfast integrity, they showed forth the praises of him who had called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. In their wonderful deliverance were displayed before that vast assembly the power and majesty of God. Jesus placed himself by their side in the fiery furnace and by the glory of his presence convinced the proud king of Babylon that it could be none other than the Son of God. The light of heaven had been shining forth from Daniel and his companions until their associates understood the faith which ennobled their lives and beautified their characters. By the deliverance of his faithful servants, the Lord declares that he will take his stand with the oppressed and overthrow all earthly powers that would trample upon the authority of the God of heaven. A lesson to the faint-hearted. What a lesson is here given to the faint-hearted, the vacillating, the cowardly in the cause of God. What encouragement to those who will not be turned aside from duty by threats or peril. These faithful, steadfast characters exemplify sanctification while they have no thought of claiming the high honor. The amount of good which may be accomplished by comparatively obscure but devoted Christians cannot be estimated until the life record shall be made known when the judgment shall sit and the books be opened. Christ identifies his interest with this class. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. There should be hundreds where there is now one among us so closely allied to God, their lives in such close conformity to his will, that they would be bright and shining lights, sanctified, holy in soul, body, and spirit. 
the conflict still goes on between the children of light and the children of darkness. Those who name the name of Christ should shake off the lethargy that enfeebles their efforts and should meet the momentous responsibilities that devolve upon them. All who do this may expect the power of God to be revealed in them. The Son of God, the world's Redeemer, will be represented in their words and in their works, and God's name will be glorified. The next paragraph is from Prophets and Kings, page 513. As in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, so in the closing period of earth's history, the Lord will work mightily in behalf of those who stand steadfast to the right. He who walked with the Hebrew worthies in the fiery furnace will be with his followers wherever they are. His abiding presence will comfort and sustain. In the midst of the time of trouble, trouble such as has not been since there was a nation, his chosen ones will stand unmoved. Satan with all the hosts of evil cannot destroy the weakest of God's saints. Angels that excel in strength will protect them and in their behalf, Jehovah will reveal himself as a God of gods, able to save to the uttermost those who put their trust in him. Chapter 5, Daniel in the Lion's Den. When Darius took possession of the throne of Babylon, he at once proceeded to reorganize the government. He set over the kingdom 120 princes, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first. And Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. The honors bestowed upon Daniel excited the jealousy of the leading men of the kingdom. The presidents and princes sought to find occasion for complaint against him but they could find none occasion nor faults. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. What a lesson is here presented for all Christians. The keen eyes of jealousy were fixed upon Daniel day after day. Their watchings were sharpened by hatred, yet not a word or act of his life could they make appear wrong. And still he made no claim to sanctification but he did that which was infinitely better. He lived a life of faithfulness and consecration, a satanic plot. The more blameless the conduct of Daniel, the greater was the hatred excited against him by his enemies. They were filled with madness because they could find nothing in his moral character or in the discharge of his duties upon which to base a complaint against him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Three times a day Daniel prayed to the God of heaven. This was the only accusation that could be brought against him. A scheme was now devised to accomplish his destruction. His enemies assembled at the palace and besought the king to pass a decree that no person in the whole realm should ask anything of either God or man except of Darius the king for the space of thirty days, and that any violation of this edict should be punished by casting the offender into the den of lions. The king knew nothing of the hatred of these men toward Daniel, and did not suspect that the decree would in any way injure him. 
through flattery they made the monarch believe it would be greatly to his honor to pass such an edict. With a smile of satanic triumph upon their faces, they come forth from the presence of the king and rejoice together over the snare which they have laid for the servant of God. An example of boldness and fidelity. The decree goes forth from the king. Daniel is acquainted with the purpose of his enemies to ruin him, but he does not change his course in a single particular. With calmness he performs his accustomed duties, and at the hour of prayer he goes to his chamber, and with his windows open toward Jerusalem he offers his petition to the God of heaven. By his course of action he fearlessly declares that no earthly power has the right to come between him and his God and to tell him to whom he should or should not pray. Noble man of principle, he stands before the world today as a praiseworthy example of Christian boldness and fidelity. He turns to God with all his heart, although he knows that death is the penalty for his devotion. His adversaries watch him an entire day. Three times he has repaired to his chamber, and three times the voice of earnest intercession has been heard. The next morning the complaint is made to the king that Daniel, one of the captives of Judah, has set at defiance his decree. When the monarch heard these words, his eyes were at once opened to see the snare that had been set. He was sorely displeased with himself for having passed such a decree and labored till the going down of the sun to devise a plan by which Daniel might be delivered. But the prophet's enemies had anticipated this, and they came before the king with these words, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statue which the king establisheth may be changed. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. A stone was laid upon the mouth of the den and sealed with the royal seal. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. My God has sent his angel. Early in the morning the monarch hastened to the den of lions and cried, Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? The voice of the prophet was heard in reply, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and has shut the lions' mouths that they have not hurt me. Forasmuch as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then was the king exceeding glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. Thus was the servant of God delivered, and the snare which his enemies had laid for his destruction proved to be their own ruin. At the command of the king they were cast into the den and instantly devoured by the wild beasts. Chapter 6 Daniel's Prayers 
As the time approached for the close of the 70 years' captivity, Daniel's mind became greatly exercised upon the prophecies of Jeremiah. He saw that the time was at hand when God would give his chosen people another trial, and with fasting, humiliation, and prayer, he importuned the God of heaven in behalf of Israel in these words, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants or prophets which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel does not proclaim his own fidelity before the Lord. Instead of claiming to be pure and holy, this honored prophet humbly identifies himself with the really sinful of Israel. The wisdom which God had imparted to him was as far superior to the wisdom of the great men of the world as the light of the sun shining in the heavens at noonday is brighter than the feeblest star. Yet ponder the prayer from the lips of this man so highly favored of heaven. With deep humiliation, with tears and rending of heart, he pleads for himself and for his people. He lays his soul open before God, confessing his own unworthiness and acknowledging the Lord's greatness and majesty. Earnestness and fervor. What earnestness and fervor characterize his supplications. The hand of faith is reached upward to grasp the never-failing promises of the Most High. His soul is wrestling in agony, and he has the evidence that his prayer is heard. He knows that victory is his. If we as a people would pray as Daniel prayed and wrestle as he wrestled, humbling our souls before God, we should realize as marked answers to our petitions as were granted to Daniel. Hear how he presses his case at the court of heaven. O oh my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. The man of God was praying for the blessing of heaven upon his people and for a clearer knowledge of the divine will. The burden of his heart was for Israel, who were not in the strictest sense keeping the law of God. He acknowledges that all their misfortunes have come upon them in consequence of their transgressions of that holy law. He says, we have sinned, we have done wickedly, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. The Jews had lost their peculiar holy character as God's chosen people. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate. Daniel's heart turns with intense longing to the desolate sanctuary of God. 
He knows that its prosperity can be restored only as Israel shall repent of their transgressions of God's law and become humble, faithful, and obedient. The heavenly messenger, as Daniel's prayer is going forth, the angel Gabriel comes sweeping down from the heavenly courts to tell him that his petitions are heard and answered. This mighty angel has been commissioned to give him skill and understanding to open before him the mysteries of future ages. Thus, while earnestly seeking to know and understand the truth, Daniel was brought into communion with heaven's delegated messenger. In answer to his petition, Daniel received not only the light and truth which he and his people most needed, but a view of the great events of the future, even to the advent of the world's Redeemer. Those who claim to be sanctified while they have no desire to search the scriptures or to wrestle with God in prayer for a clearer understanding of Bible truth know not what true sanctification is. Daniel talked with God. Heaven was open before him. But the high honors granted him were the result of humiliation and earnest seeking. All who believe with the heart the word of God will hunger and thirst for a knowledge of his will. God is the author of truth. He enlightens the darkened understanding and gives to the human mind power to grasp and comprehend the truths which he has revealed, seeking wisdom from God. Upon the occasion just described, the angel Gabriel imparted to Daniel all the instruction which he was then able to receive. A few years afterward, however, the prophet desired to learn more of subjects not yet fully explained and again set himself to seek light and wisdom from God. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine into my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all. Then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of euphaz. His body also was like the barrel, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. This description is similar to that given by John when Christ was revealed to him upon the Isle of Patmos. No less a personage than the Son of God appeared to Daniel. Our Lord comes with another heavenly messenger to teach Daniel what would take place in the latter days. The great truths revealed by the world's Redeemer are for those who search for truth as for hid treasures. Daniel was an aged man. His life had been passed amid the fascinations of a heathen court, his mind cumbered with the affairs of a great empire. Yet he turns aside from all these to afflict his soul before God and seek a knowledge of the purposes of the Most High. And in response to his supplication, light from the heavenly courts was communicated for those who should live in the latter days. With what earnestness, then, should we seek God that he may open our understanding to comprehend the truths brought to us from heaven? I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them so that they fled to hide themselves. 
and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. All who are truly sanctified will have a similar experience. The clearer their views of the greatness, glory, and perfection of Christ, the more vividly will they see their own weakness and imperfection. They will have no disposition to claim a sinless character. That which has appeared right and calmly in themselves will, in contrast with Christ's purity and glory, appear only as unworthy and corruptible. It is when men are separated from God, when they have very indistinct views of Christ, that they say, I am sinless, I am sanctified. Gabriel now appeared to the prophet and thus addressed him, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto him, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Royal honor to Daniel. What great honor is shown to Daniel by the majesty of heaven. He comforts his trembling servant and assures him that his prayer has been heard in heaven. In answer to that fervent petition, the angel Gabriel was sent to affect the heart of the Persian king. The monarch had resisted the impressions of the Spirit of God during the three weeks while Daniel was fasting and praying. But heaven's prince, the archangel Michael, was sent to turn the heart of the stubborn king to take some decided action to answer the prayer of Daniel. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips and said, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. So great was the divine glory revealed to Daniel that he could not endure the sight. Then the messenger of heaven veiled the brightness of his presence and appeared to the prophet as one like the similitude of the sons of men. By his divine power he strengthened this man of integrity and of faith to hear the message sent to him from God. Daniel was a devoted servant of the Most High. His long life was filled up with noble deeds of service for his master. His purity of character and unwavering fidelity are equaled only by his humility of heart and his contrition before God. We repeat, the life of Daniel is an inspired illustration of true sanctification. Chapter 7 the character of John. The Apostle John was distinguished above his brethren as the disciple whom Jesus loved. While not in the slightest degree cowardly, weak, or vacillating in character, he possessed an amiable disposition and a warm, loving heart. He seems to have enjoyed in a preeminent sense the friendship of Christ, and he received many tokens of the Savior's confidence and love. 
he was one of the three permitted to witness Christ's glory upon the Mount of Transfiguration and his agony in Gethsemane, and to the care of John, our Lord confided his mother in those last hours of anguish upon the cross. The Savior's affection for the beloved disciple was returned with all the strength of ardent devotion. John clung to Christ as the vine clings to the stately pillar. For his master's sake, he braved the dangers of the judgment hall and lingered about the cross. And at the tidings that Christ had risen, he hastened to the sepulcher in his zeal, outstripping even the impetuous Peter. John's love for his master was not a mere human friendship, but it was the love of a repentant sinner who felt that he had been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. He esteemed it the highest honor to work and suffer in the service of his Lord. His love for Jesus led him to love all for whom Christ died. His religion was of a practical character. He reasoned that love to God would be manifested in love to his brethren. He was heard again and again to say, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? The apostle's life was in harmony with his teachings. The love which glowed in his heart for Christ led him to put forth the most earnest, untiring labor for his fellow men, especially for his brethren in the Christian church. He was a powerful preacher, fervent and deeply in earnest, and his words carried with them a weight of conviction. A new creature through grace, the confiding love and unselfish devotion manifested in the life and character of John present lessons of untold value to the Christian church. Some may represent him as possessing this love independent of divine grace, but John had by nature serious defects of character. He was proud and ambitious and quick to resent slight and injury. The depth and fervor of John's affection for his master was not the cause of Christ's love for him, but the effect of that love. John desired to become like Jesus, and under the transforming influence of the love of Christ, he became meek and lowly of heart. Self was hid in Jesus. He was closely united to the living vine and thus became a partaker of the divine nature. Such will ever be the result of communion with Christ. This is true sanctification. There may be marked defects in the character of an individual, yet when he becomes a true disciple of Jesus, the power of divine grace makes him a new creature. Christ's love transforms, sanctifies him. But when persons profess to be Christians and their religion does not make them better men and better women in all the relations of life, living representatives of Christ in disposition and character, they are none of his. Lessons in character building. At one time, John engaged in a dispute with several of his brethren as to which of their number should be accounted greatest. They did not intend their words to reach the ear of the master, but Jesus read their hearts and embraced the opportunity to give his disciples a lesson of humility. 
it was not only for the little group who listened to his words, but was to be recorded for the benefit of all of his followers to the close of time. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. Those who possess the Spirit of Christ will have no ambition to occupy a position above their brethren. It is those who are small in their own eyes who will be accounted great in the sight of God. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. What a precious lesson is this for all the followers of Christ. Those who overlook the life duties lying directly in their pathway, who neglect mercy and kindness, courtesy and love, to even a little child are neglecting Christ. John felt the force of this lesson and profited by it. On another occasion, his brother James and himself had seen a man casting out devils in the name of Jesus, and because he did not immediately connect himself with their company, they decided that he had no right to do this work and consequently forbade him. In the sincerity of his heart, John related the circumstance to his master. Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. Again, James and John, presented by their mother, a petition requesting that they might be permitted to occupy the highest positions of honor in Christ's kingdom. The Savior answered, Ye know not what ye ask. How little do many of us understand the true import of our prayers. Jesus knew the infinite sacrifice at which that glory must be purchased when he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. That joy was to see souls saved by his humiliation, his agony, and the shedding of his blood. This was the glory which Christ was to receive and which these two disciples had requested that they might be permitted to share. Jesus asked them, Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. How little did they comprehend what that baptism signified. Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized withal shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Pride and ambition reproved. Jesus understood the motives which prompted the request, and thus reproved the pride and ambition of the two disciples. Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many." 
Upon one occasion Christ sent messengers before him unto a village of the Samaritans, requesting the people to prepare refreshments for himself and his disciples. But when the Savior approached the town, he appeared to be passing on toward Jerusalem. This aroused the enmity of the Samaritans, and instead of sending messengers to invite and even urge him to tarry with them, they withheld the courtesies which they would have given to a common wayfarer. Jesus never urges his presence upon any, and the Samaritans lost the blessing which would have been granted them had they solicited him to be their guest. We may wonder at this uncourteous treatment of the majesty of heaven, but how frequently are we who profess to be the followers of Christ guilty of similar neglect? Do we urge Jesus to take up his abode in our hearts and in our homes? He is full of love, of grace, of blessing, and stands ready to bestow these gifts upon us. But like the Samaritans, we are often content without them. The disciples were aware of the purpose of Christ to bless the Samaritans with his presence, and when they saw the coldness, jealousy, and disregard shown to their master, they were filled with surprise and indignation. James and John were especially stirred. That he whom they so highly reverenced should be thus treated seemed to them a crime too great to be passed over without immediate punishment. In their zeal they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did, referring to the destruction of the Syrian captains and their companies sent out to take the prophet Elijah? Jesus rebuked his disciples, saying, Ye know not what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. John and his fellow disciples were in a school in which Christ was a teacher. Those who were ready to see their own defects and were anxious to improve in character had ample opportunity. John treasured every lesson and constantly sought to bring his life into harmony with the divine pattern. The lessons of Jesus, setting forth meekness, humility, and love as essential to growth in grace and a fitness for his work, were of the highest value to John. These lessons are addressed to us as individuals and as brethren in the church as well as to the first disciples of Christ. John and Judas, an instructive lesson may be drawn from the striking contrast between the character of John and that of Judas. John was a living illustration of sanctification. On the other hand, Judas possessed a form of godliness while his character was more satanic than divine. He professed to be a disciple of Christ, but in words and in works denied him. Judas had the same precious opportunities as had John to study and to imitate the pattern. He listened to the lessons of Christ, and his character might have been transformed by divine grace. But while John was earnestly warring against his own faults and seeking to assimilate to Christ, Judas was violating his conscience, yielding to temptation, and fastening upon himself habits of dishonesty that would transform him into the image of Satan. These two disciples represent the Christian world. All profess to be Christ's followers, but while one class walk in humility and meekness, learning of Jesus, the others show that they are not doers of the word, but hearers only. 
One class are sanctified through the truth, the other know nothing of the transforming power of divine grace. The former are daily dying to self and are overcoming sin. The latter are indulging their own lusts and becoming the servants of Satan.